This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions. Today's big question, is evidence enough? Today's show is being recorded in the premier Christian radio studios in London in the UK. Now today we're meeting someone who is very familiar with the concept of interviewing people about the big questions of life. Justin Brownlee studied politics, philosophy and economics at Oxford University where he was also actively involved in amateur dramatics, directing the Christian Arts and Drama Society. Justin is the host of the award-winning premier radio program Unbelievable and he joins me now. Justin? Welcome to Bigger Questions. Thank you very much for having me on the program. No, no problems. Well, I suppose it's a bit funny me welcoming you to your own studio <laughs> where we're recording this. Yes, I'm used to welcoming people into this studio myself, so it's, it's great to have the tables turned on me for once. Now, I'm intrigued. Before we get into chat a bit about you and your show, apparently you can recite the name of the Welsh town that's very long. <laughs> I was just wondering, can you give, can you give it a I go- knew I shouldn't have put that on my online biography. Um, Yes, if you really want it, there's a, a very long Welsh name of a town, and it goes like this, and it's one of the longest place names in the world, apparently. Apparently, yes. Now, in Australia, we usually repeat the names of places, like, you know, Wagga Wagga, Woi Woi, Grong Grong, Now and Now. Do you reckon this might work? Um, you could give it a go. Yeah. You, you want me to teach you it? Is that the idea? Or <laughs> no, 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 maybe not. Maybe not. Okay. No. Anyway, so Justin, so you're host of a radio show, unbelievable. You work for Premier. Tell us a bit about your story. What convinced you to become a Christian believer? What convinced me? Um, uh, in a way, my experience of becoming a Christian was very much an experiential one. Uh, my parents were Christians. They they were kind of adult converts, really, to Christianity themselves at university. But I grew up within a Christian family, mm-hmm. went to church. It came real for me, I think, sort of in my late teens. And uh, particularly there was there was one moment I could pinpoint, uh, which was a sort of a youth retreat that my church put on. And, and I had an experience there which really cemented for me, wow, this is real. Mm-hmm. And I'd say my life changed significantly from that point on. It, it sort of all became the, the penny dropped, let's say. Mm. Um, having said that, as you know, going on and just being a student and so on, I, I ran into some sort of mental issues of you know some of those big questions that often come around and so I had my moments of doubt and and it was really in those late teens that I also started to read people like C.S. Lewis uh, and other apologists eventually I didn't know of the the name the word apologetics at that point but Mm. I started to to, to investigate some of that stuff and um, I guess pursue an intellectual side to the experiential experience I'd had of of Christianity up to that point. Mm. So what what were your big questions then? Well, I think particularly it was simply when I was challenged by someone who said, well, I haven't had your experience. Is there any evidence that there is a God, you know? Mm. And and, uh, it was those quite simple questions in a way that that made me think, goodness, is is this just something in my mind? Is this just something I've convinced myself into believing mm. uh, something you were just indoctrinated as a child perhaps? exactly yeah. yeah I grew up in a Christian family was it inevitable I was going to embrace Christianity or something like that and inevitably when you get to university and, and at Oxford you you meet all kinds of people and they have their skeptic societies and, and there's a lot of that debate student debate going on so inevitably at some level you you feel challenged now there is a great Christian union as well mm. at Oxford and, and historically it's had a very strong Christian presence there and uh, they were great, actually, at, at helping you to put together some of the pieces uh, along the way. So when you were, say, 14 years old, was it inevitable, do you think, that you were going to become a 
I don't, I don't think it was inevitable because I think I saw many of my peers who didn't embrace Christianity, even though they maybe had grown up in a fairly strong Christian family. I don't think there's anything inevitable about it. Uh, I think it does make a huge difference when you do have a committed family mm. around you and you see it in a very tangible way that, that faith is important to them. Uh, and so in that sense, I'd say I had a great example. But uh, no, absolutely, I, I could have gone in a different direction, I think. Um, I, I, I don't exactly know how this grace thing works, whether <laughs> we choose or we get chosen or whatever. But that moment when I knew I'd had that experience, I, I, that was, for me, undeniable that something changed within me. It, mm. it wasn't something I could describe to you exactly. I just knew that something in me had responded to something beyond me. Mm. And, and this was a sort of formative moment in my life. Uh, and so that has, I guess, through all the questions that inevitably just doing the show I do, which basically brings, you know, sceptics and doubters into my life every week, mm -hmm. um, that that has actually been something that has also kept me going in a way, because uh, even if I do or don't have an answer to this precise problem that someone's raised, there's something kind of that undergirds this whole thing, which is just I know that I've, I've had something which which mm. I can't deny. There's there's been an experience that I can't just say no that was just a, a figment of my imagination mm, is in the possibly the slightly philosophical language of Emmanuel Kant the noumenal has crashed into your phenomenal world <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> that you've had this you can't deny that this is actually that's a good the, way of putting it yeah I like that that's the, the noumenal has crashed into my phenomenal world um but yeah so so in the, in that sense I uh my, my childhood my adolescence kind of did lead me down this journey um and certainly I'd, I'd say I'm not the same Christian necessarily as I was when I, you know, had that experience as a 14, 15 year old. Mm. Uh, definitely. Well, we, certainly, we certainly hope not in some respects. Well, exactly. Like, uh, you don't, you, you, I'd hate to be the same person that I was when I was 15. Or... <laughs> but, but nonetheless, something of what happened there has stayed with me. That There's been a sort of a core thing that, that happened. And even though my theology has developed, I mean, I just didn't know any theology at the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, then you, in a sense... You, there, there's still something that that was the backstop, which mm. which started that process. Now you mentioned your show, Unbelievable, that mm. you host, a radio show designed to get Christians and skeptics and non-Christians together, talking. Tell us a little, little bit about the show. Perhaps my first, why the name? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Uh, is it unbelievable that I, people of differing <laughs> religious views can get together and there's no violence? Or, or maybe do you well, save that for outside well, of the recording? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the show name came to me when I first approached the CEO of, of Premier Christian Radio, which broadcasts the program. And uh, I just thought, well, it kind of, it's got a double meaning, hasn't it? Unbelievable. It can mean both that is, you know, unbelievable as in I, I can't believe that. It, it, it doesn't mm. have any uh, credibility to it. But it also means something is amazing, you know, phenomenal. Mm. It, oh, that's just unbelievable, uh, you know. And so I, I suppose I had in my mind back then, and this was a while ago now, that that you could take it in both ways. And you could, at one sense, say Christianity is, is unbelievable. It's amazing. It's extraordinary, um, phenomenal. And at the other hand, you could say, look at it from the skeptic side and say well is it unbelievable um and uh and so that was where the show was born um and really i had in my mind really something along the lines of if we can get christians and non-christians together onto a christian radio station uh, this would be a great way of helping the christians who are listening to kind of understand where their skeptical friends are coming from um give them the tools at some level to have that kind of a 
discussion. Uh, when I was just starting out, I had these grand ideas that I'd get people converting on the air and, you know, making a commitment. That never happened. So this, <laughs> these weren't the people you were interviewing, were they? Yeah. You sort of, oh, I'm sorry. I, I've made my... I, but I, I soon yeah. learned that actually um, probably the most value that, that we'd have in this would be that you'd hear both sides of the argument. Mm. Now, that didn't go down well all the time, especially at the beginning right. with, with the Christian listeners. Right. Um, because uh, some had, and maybe they had a point, but some would write in and say, look, I get, you know, I can hear sceptical voices and atheists and whatnot any time of the week on the BBC. This is a Christian radio station. It's more or less our only Christian radio station in the UK. Why do you have to bring them on here? Kind of thing. Um, which, you know, is a fair point. Um and I guess I justified it by saying, well, look, it's only an hour, an hour and a half a week. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't want to live in a Christian bubble. We're good at talking to each other about Christian things, uh, encouraging each other in that way. But we have to accept that we live in this world where there are lots of people asking these kinds of questions. And, mm-hmm. and are we going to be prepared to answer any of them? And, uh, and I think in the end, people who just found it a bit too challenging or whatever just ended up saying, right, well, I'm just going to tune out at that point just in the week. Put on another episode of Songs yeah, of Praise. Exactly. <laughs> um, whereas it gained a new audience who were really interested in hearing those voices and, and very much were for um, what it was doing. And so, you know, to give him credit, our, our CEO, Peter Kerridge, um, you know, pressed on and, and wanted to make it happen. And in the end, of course, uh, the podcast took off as well. And that's really where we saw... Uh, a real growth as well in terms of the listenership people who were seeking out this kind of material mm. all over the world because i suppose at one level it's relatively unusual to have christians and, and skeptics and non-christians actually speaking in a civil intelligent way yeah and and what i found is because these days the internet has produced this kind of anonymous um very confrontational kind of debate structure very often between christians and non-christians so you go on your facebook and it can be a real bear pit and people will just start lobbing insults very fairly quickly um it's interesting when you get two people face to face it's much harder for that kind of interaction to happen people you know whatever it is there's some inbuilt kind of sense of uh, civility mm. that means that people aren't as prepared to be like that when they're face to face and so you, it's interesting when I've sometimes had people who look on paper or on the internet like they'll be really aggressive bring them in face to face and you'll get a completely different kind of conversation uh, I, I found that interestingly when I had Richard Dawkins on recently and he uh, you know has a reputation for being in some ways quite uh, aggressive in his tone and demeanour and so on towards people of faith but it was a surprisingly civil and cordial conversation i mean he didn't pull his punches he, he mm. made his criticisms but but we were able to have quite an interesting chat and a, some laughs as well between the the other guests that i had on who were representing a sort of theistic view mm. so so it you you never know what's mm. going to happen mm. in fact well maybe do you want to just tell us a bit about some of the good shows and so on that you've had yeah. what a some of the memorable ones memorable yeah if you go through the you know the hall of fame the greatest hits well what what i love about the show is that as i've done it over the years and when i started i was very green as far as really knowing anything about most of the issues that that we would eventually come to discuss so it's been a real learning curve for me and an opportunity to pick up all kinds of uh, theology and and issues and arguments that i hadn't been aware of before then um, and so in the course of time, that's meant um, hearing really interesting things, for instance, on arguments from design, 
I mean, some of the most probably complex but interesting shows have been, for instance, when I've had someone like Stephen Mayer, who's a intelligent design theorist out in the States. Now, uh, he gets criticised from both camps, you know, atheist mm-hmm. and some Christians who, yep. who don't approve of intelligent design, the, the idea that nature has within it certain things that suggest that there is a design process that it didn't just arise by um, natural selection, evolution and so on. Um, but but doing those kinds of shows where you've brought someone like him on with, with a kind of really top, um, you know, scientist on the other side who disagrees with him just gives you uh, such an interesting kind of um, technical yet quite accessible uh, explanation of some of the issues at stake and it's been really great to be able to host those kinds of discussions and I think people like Stephen have really appreciated having the space to do that um, there, there was a classic episode it was um, Peter Hitchens now yep. Peter brother of the late Christopher Hitchens of course who was a well-known new atheist Peter on the other hand very very different uh, resides here in the UK is a columnist for the Mail on Sunday very conservative in his uh, politics although he wasn't always that way no he was a marxist in his youth um but a very committed christian as well and like his brother great rhetorical skills and so um when when i've had him on a couple of times he's always produced a really interesting response and i had him on with uh, an atheist scientist called adam rutherford a few years ago and they were debating uh, peter's new book at the time um, the Rage Against God, which was really a, a sort of an essay on the new atheism and, mm. you know, his brother in a way, who at the time was still with us. It was interesting to hear both about that and the way he viewed his brother, um, but also this interaction he had with Adam um, was just very feisty, very interesting, and really kind of drilled down to the issue of what has atheism done for the world where it has been put into practice, if you like, in those kind of situations in Soviet Russia and so on, where mm. Peter Hitchens was a, a reporter for a number of years and, and were kind of what convinced him that this doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, so those kinds of episodes which hit so many on so many levels, you, you've got a great communicator, you've got a really interesting subject matter, you've got a great interaction between a guest who doesn't share their view. Some of those really sing and they're absolutely essential listening. And any absolute flops, do you think? <laughs> or maybe you shouldn't tell us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which ones to avoid? <laughs> it depends. I mean, I guess the danger you face sometimes is that you can sometimes have people who are brilliant at what they do on paper, mm. but they're not that good at maybe expressing that in a live setting. And so... Or even in conversation with Or in conversation well. with someone. And so it's always that question of um, trying to find those who, who do both, ideally, who, who are respected in the academic world, who can really make it work in the live setting as well. Uh, and sometimes that doesn't work. Mm. And you realise that that person didn't communicate as well as I know they communicate in their written work or something yeah, like that. Might. I won't name any names. but That's you know. okay. You might, be, you might think, I wish I put on songs of praise now. As well. That's right. <laughs> now, you've obviously engaged with lots of different people. What are, what's the strongest argument against your position that you've heard? That's, a, that's an interesting one. I, I think one of the strongest arguments against my position um, is when I suppose people go to the source of, of where I get my information about the person that I revere and respect and is, is the centre of my life, Jesus Christ. Mm. So I remember the, one of the most challenging shows I did was when I had Bart Ehrman on for the first time. And yep. for those who aren't familiar with him, he's a, a North American professor of New Testament. He himself, though, lost his faith, partially through um, the fact that he came to believe that 
the New Testament documents weren't trustworthy, that we we couldn't really trust that we had the original writings of the disciples and, and those who put down the books and so on. And I read his um, book uh, in advance of doing this discussion show, and I was putting him up with uh, a very sort of reputable New Testament scholar from Cambridge, Peter J. Williams, and uh, they were going to have this debate on Bart's well-known book, Misquoting Jesus. Mm. So I was reading this book, um, Misquoting Jesus, uh, sort of, this was over a Christmas holiday period, and I was sort of recording it in the new year. And it really did shake me. I thought, oh, he's got some good points here, you mm. know, and, and I wasn't sure, you know. Um, now, as it turned out, once I started reading some of the follow-up material, some of the response books, I realized actually I can see now where some of this stuff maybe is slightly overstated in this book. I can see actually how what when he says there are X thousand errors between manuscripts, how once you actually boil that down, it may not make that much difference to anything in the well, end. And, and these kinds of things, you start to kind of... Man- manuscripts are different because one says Jesus Christ, one says Christ Jesus. Or exactly. One says differences between manuscripts yeah. and so on are, are, are really, you know, don't don't make any difference at all. And and, and, and so when I started to, to look into that, and indeed when Peter J. Williams came on and started to explain some of that in the discussion they had, it kind of, you know, that turns the table again. And, and so you realise, oh, that sort of slight sense of, ooh, this, this is a bit worrying, um, tends to then dissipate a bit. So you were really listening hard to his answers <laughs> in, the, in the debate. Because yeah, this, is, this is not just a, a matter for, for the listeners out here. This but is but that's of... why, in a sense, the, the, this show is challenging mm. for Christians as well. Because many times I'm raising problems for Christians where they never had a problem before. You know, mm. they never came across this particular objection even though it maybe exists out there somewhere. Mm. And so you have to be wary of that. And my responsibility, and it is a big responsibility, is to try and bring on people who can adequately defend and represent Christianity. Uh, and I suppose also from the sceptical side as well, you don't, you don't want to bring on straw men. Exactly, to, exactly. To, uh, you to, want you want to represent the best, best arguments if you can. Yes. Now, there's some research which suggests that no matter what evidence is presented before a person, they're never going to change their minds at all. Uh, things like that, the backfire effect. If your convictions are challenged by contradictory evidence, then your beliefs actually get stronger. Mm-hmm. Or confirmation bias, where people aren't looking for information, they're just looking for confirmation. Mm. So is it a pointless exercise, then, <laughs> engaging people to discuss the, these? Inform- I, I must say, that the thought can cross my mind sometimes when I see some of the, the Facebook debates that go on on my um, the group page of my show between atheists and Christians. Yeah. I just think we're, it often looks like people are just getting more and more entrenched in their positions. Having said that, I, I think you have to accept that, obviously, that, that cuts both ways. Both atheist Christians or people of other faiths can can be entrenched and, and refuse to see other points of view. I think I think what's key is that you do retain an open mind. There's nothing wrong with having a firmly held belief. Mm. I think the question is, are you willing to hear other arguments and are you willing to interact with them? Uh, And then it's down to each individual, I think, as to what they do with that. Mm. Uh, The fact is there might be all kinds of other influences on a person that may make them not as willing to simply abandon a strongly held belief. Um, So if they hear a great argument against God, some kind of why would God allow all this suffering in the world or something? Yeah. They might say, well, that sounds good, um, but I've got this other experience or this other evidence which suggests to me there's also this other good evidence for God. And so um, it's, it's it, inevitably you're going to have to work hard for someone who's really thought through and has, has spent some time grappling with that stuff and, and nailing it down. I think you're more likely to find I've got good reason to believe this and I'm not going to give it up very easily mm. at this point. I think I think in a way though, inevitably youth youth does make a difference, doesn't it? And and I think we do become somehow a bit more um, 
less willing to budge the older we get. Mm. Uh, mm. And, and so I think it's interesting to me that very often it's among students, young people, where they're at their most, the point at which they're most willing to be open to other perspectives and, and to, to hear those discussions and, and be led in one direction or the other. Because I think at that point in their life, they're deciding what do I think about these things? And a bit later on in people's lives, I think, in a sense, they're, they're less likely to do that because they feel like, no, I've kind of made my bed and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lie in it. Mm. Of course, there are examples of people who've made an extraordinary turnaround in the direction of Christianity from atheism who uh, felt that they had to change their mind. I mean, even, I know he didn't, embrace full-blown Christianity but there's that example isn't there of Anthony Flew who flew who flew flew the coop so yeah, to speak, yeah who was one of the you know in his day in the 60s 70s the, one of the most influential atheist philosophers in the world and he you know in his later years um, decided to change his mind now there was some controversy around that but I spoke to him before he died and he uh, he said this was my decision. I think this is where the evidence points that there is mm. a God mm. uh, so it's interesting isn't it that so many people do inevitably um, get calcified in their position that they'll build up a barrier of resistance and you feel like even the best argument in the world wouldn't be able to convince that person. But I suppose there's something, I mean, you'd still think that the evidence could still change someone's mind even if my position is so calcified. I I think it's got to be a combination, though. I don't think evidence alone changes people's minds. I've become convinced of that just from doing this show for, for several years there has to be, in my view, a desire somewhere within that person for God. I think if someone doesn't want God, full stop, you can present evidence till the cows come home and there will always be a way of saying, but it could be, there will always be a counter argument. You'll never get, you know, a uh, copper bottomed, irrefutable ar- argument for God. You, there's always a get out, if you like. And where I do see change, it tends to be among people who there's also a something of a yearning, something of a somehow this also fills something within them. It doesn't just answer a purely intellectual Mm. question. Now, today's big question is, is evidence enough? And as part of bigger questions, we reflect on a part of the Bible which resonates with the experience of our guest. Now, in the New Testament book of Acts, in Acts 26, we read about a dialogue between a believer and a non-believer where the Christian message was publicly scrutinized and arguments were presented to debate the truthfulness of the Christian message. The context is that the Christian believer, the Apostle Paul, had been arrested and tried by the Jews for preaching the Christian message. He was left in prison for some time and eventually appeared before the non-believer, King Agrippa, who heard Paul's case. Now, in making his defense, the Apostle Paul outlines three key evidences of the truth of the Christian faith. First, in verse 8, he challenges the rulers with the reality of the resurrection. And second, in verses 9 to 23, Paul shares his own personal conversion story. Now, Justin, Paul's conversion was remarkable, wasn't it? It was almost unbelievable. Yeah, and that's that's why I say there are many different strands. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes apologists can get almost to the exclusion of the others, focused on the the evidence and argument, if you like, I suppose, that one side of Paul's argument, which was the evidence for the resurrection, for instance. Mm. But it's such a shame to to divorce that from the experiential element, which is obviously the other part of Paul's story, which is that he he met something which knocked him off his horse. Mm. And so for for me, it it is important that we, we never lose that when we're presenting the Christian faith. If it's not backed up by something that has made a real difference in your own life, Mm. then I think the case looks weaker if you're presenting a purely 
academic and intellectual argument for mm. the existence of God. And and Paul's yeah is the classic example of someone for whom an experience of meeting the risen Christ changed his entire worldview. Mm. Um, it didn't make him a less intellectual man. He, he then poured his intellect into reassessing his whole Jewish mm. worldview in light of this extraordinary experience he'd had. And his letters and his theology mm. are, are what we have as a result. And I suppose it's similar to your own story in some respects. The noumenal yes. crashing into the phenomenal. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and then trying to work it out intellectually as I, as I go along. And you can see Paul doing that, you know, in, in his letters very often. He's, he's kind of taking these big ideas and, and sort of applying them in whole new ways. You know, some of these things he's, he's had from the Jewish law and then seeing how that works out in Christ. Mm. And, and that, for me, is exciting, actually, is to... Um, part of the excitement of being a Christian for me is to say, this is an extraordinary worldview. We have this this idea that God has broken into space and time in a person, in Jesus Christ, and this changes the whole world, and it changes me, and it will make a difference to how I live and the way I think about things as well. I don't think in the old ways, and, and that's a challenge and an inspiration to mm. me because uh, it means I have to think Christianly as mm. far as I can, and, and that's a wonderful thing. Now, Paul also outlines a third evidence for the Christian message, which is appropriate for a Jewish audience, which is the evidence from the prophets, which Jesus fulfills. And in verse 27, Paul asks the king if he believes the prophets. And then Agrippa responds, he says, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? <laughs> and to which Paul responds, in a short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me may today become what I am. Now, it seems like, again, this is what we've been talking about. There's a bit of inertia here yeah. for Agrippa to believe, even yeah. though he's, Paul's presented a coherent argument, you know, lots of evidence, and he's demonstrated mm. with his own mm. his own life. Do you think that there might be some sort of you know, confirmation I, I, bias? I, I, th I think there is, in a way. And, and I think it's the classic case, isn't it, of King Agrippa has a lot to lose mm. if he accepts this. And I think this is something that plays into so often people's decision to reject or accept Christ it's a lot more than just, was I convinced by this argument? Mm. It's what have I got to lose if I do this? The rich young ruler, I'm sure, was convinced of Christ was who he said he was. But when Christ asked him to give up everything he had in order to follow him, the cost was too great and he went away sad. And in that sense, I think all of us have something to lose by following Christ, if, even if it's just our own pride or our belief in our own ability to, to look after ourselves and not be dependent on something beyond ourselves. What would I have to give up if this were true? And is that making a difference to whether I'm prepared to accept it or not? Mm. So based on Paul and Agrippa's kind of conversation here, do you think there's an uh, unbelievable show here? Do you think you could... <laughs> Agrippa and St. Paul, if you can sort that out for me, <laughs> uh, I, uh, that would definitely be high on the ratings, I reckon. Well, I, I think so. There'd be a, quite a number of interested listeners, I'm <laughs> sure. Maybe you could stage it. <laughs> I'd have quite a few questions to ask from That's Paul right. as well, actually. Yeah, I'm sure that there's a lot of people, a lot of questions people want to ask about <laughs> Paul uh, as well. Anyway, it's been a pleasure today to chat with you, Justin. Thank you so much. So let me leave you with some of the Bible's answer to the big question. Is evidence enough? From Acts 26, 29. Short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am. I look forward to you joining us next time for Bigger Questions. Thanks very much to our guest today, Justin Briley. Justin Briley. 